Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Lorraine Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. For this episode and our next episode, we're going to be exploring physical marginalization, how people who are experiencing homelessness are physically cast out, pushed outside the boundaries of many communities. This concept is so deeply ingrained in our culture that many people see nothing wrong with it. In many ways, this was the first concept that modern America was founded on. The colonists and our founders believed so strongly in white supremacy that they saw nothing wrong with white settlers taking land from native peoples. They saw nothing wrong in banishing native people from fertile ground and casting them out to inhospitable regions of the country. That early white supremacy grew into even stronger beliefs about who belonged and who did not during slavery, reconstruction, the era of racial terror, the Great Migration, the Civil Rights Movement, and ensuing mass incarceration. For those of us who work on addressing homelessness, we have to confront white supremacy every day. As we record this, there is a protest going on a few miles away in the city of Rosemead to try and stop a Project Room Key hotel that would protect elderly and medically fragile people experiencing homelessness from contracting COVID-19. Having witnessed many of these types of protests in the past, my experience is that the protesters often feel very strongly that they're not racist, but that they have a duty to keep those people out of their community. Our ideas about who belongs where have consequences, which is where we start today's episode. I'd like to start with the question of what does the success of a restorative world look like? Clean water, quality air and food, secure, safe housing for proper rest and sleep, where people can have interest and the ability to socialize, learn and work while feeling physically safe to do so. Everyone having their human need for love and belonging being met. For without acceptance and understanding, people are deprived and suffer from the sense of unworthiness. But with intimacy, where one has connections to share inner thoughts with others who care, we'll all experience a world of people with healthy self-esteem, independence with respect, freedom, confidence, and the ability to achieve greatness and recognizing the greatness in everyone else. Then there's self-actualized fulfillment, living in unity, unforgettable periods of joy and completeness. I have a faith. My childhood faith is more alive today than ever. A faith that isn't suppressed by sermons that take away self-agency, but a faith that has sustained my breath even under the dire circumstances that has held people of color in the chokehold of racism. I can't breathe. A faith that has sustained a breath throughout every challenge in my childhood. My faith has brought the vision of all people, especially people of color, black people, healed from intentional acts led by fear, control, and greed. Fear that has bred structural racism that kills and threatens the essential needs of all. Again, I ask, what does the success of a restorative world look like? And what are you willing to do to contribute to it? 
Lorraine, when you and I first talked about this podcast, you told me that you wanted to make sure that we talked about safety and how many people who experience homelessness and receive housing assistance often have to live in unsafe neighborhoods. Can you talk about what you've learned about the communities where many advocates like yourself are able to secure housing? Yeah. When I think about what's happening right now with COVID-19 and what I would consider the low income, the frontline workers, the people that really make the world go round, we are put in these areas where the surroundings aren't safe, where there's high rates of crime, there's lots of liquor stores. I don't see any impact of COVID-19 closing down on the liquor stores. And I know the strategic mindset that was pushing this to happen in these certain communities where the redlining and the residue of it is still showing up today. Yeah, there's a lot of advocates that I know that have had this opportunity for housing and due to where housing is more likely to be built, it is in places where safety is not the number one priority. And so thinking about housing justice is a living space that is safe, one where you feel comfortable living in and you look forward to going home to. And so that's why I thought it was important to highlight it. How did you get the idea to interview your son, Melvin, about safety? So I think back to who Melvin has been and how these unsafe living conditions has changed him so much. So Melvin was born with a disability that he was not aware of. He was this vibrant child, very lively, always like making friends and being so creative. And then it set in that because of him looking different, that he was no longer safe. And so I watched this transition happen in his life. And I realized how much just the meaning of safety has changed who he is and his core being, his personality, the way that he relates to himself in the world. And I, I know that Melvin is not the only one. And so I wanted to highlight what it's like to live in a world where people don't quite understand who you are or what they think of you based on how you look and how that starts to deteriorate your idea of I feel safe in the world and then who you have to become in this outer shell to be able to uh, be okay. So that's why I thought of let's Take a look at Melvin and, and hear how safety has changed him so much. My name is Melvin Farmer, also known as Too Hungry. I'm a fashion designer and an upcoming music artist. I say you are already very well established. You have about, how many albums do you have out? Three. <laughs> Was it hard to ask him about his experiences? Very hard. Um... At the time of doing that interview with Melvin, we had just transitioned from him leaving from Humboldt State University because he felt unsafe. And 
he was dealing with racism and he talked about his friends who were white and did not know how to stand up for him when racism was brought against him. And these are the surface of what showed up in Melvin's life after feeling unsafe for so many years. And he thought, if I go off to this different space where it's more greenery and it's not the hood, then I'll have this idea of I feel safe here and I could be here and I could thrive here. So asking him these questions, I I didn't know what would open up and I prepped him prior to and I asked him if he would take time after this interview to just take care of himself, to be with himself and do whatever he needs to to take care of himself. It was it was a great challenge. I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but Melvin is a trooper. He sure is. Tell us about what your housing experience has been like. It's been wishy-washy. Starting off, it was unstable. I did a lot of moving around as a kid. Most of the time, we were going back and forth from Los Angeles and Las Vegas. We lived lots of other places that I don't even remember. I was too young to remember. But yeah, we did a lot of moving around. Then we finally did get to LA. It's still kind of wishy-washy because like now we're moving from house to house. We don't really have our own place. Then it got to a point where we kind of had our own place, but we couldn't be our own selves. So we we had a place to call home, but it wasn't it wasn't a place where we could be free and feel safe mentally, emotionally. I think it was 2014 when we got a house in the Compton area. More like 2012. That's when we got that house, and that's where we finally started to explore ourselves and make the home match we wanted. It's, it's kind of like if you never had your own room and then you finally get your own room, that experience for you is... Man, something crazy. And that was the house where I got my own room. And, oh, man, I remember, like, it was yesterday. I was so happy. I'm like, man, I'm going to decorate this place. I'm going to turn this place up. I took my room, and I made it a place that tended to me. I did everything in my room. I didn't, I didn't want an excuse to not leave my room. The other places, it's just like, I just want to get out of this house. Like, get me out of here. Don't. I don't want to sleep in this bed. I don't want to <laughs> sit in this chair. I don't want to be in this kitchen. I just want to get out. That place is like, dang, this is my place. It's mine. Lorraine, while you were experiencing homelessness, your name came up on the waiting list for the South Scattered Sites, which is public housing in South LA. For people who are unfamiliar with the Scattered Sites, how would you describe it? The way that they have it up on the website as the Los Angeles County Development Authority where there's 36 developments and 430 of those units are low-income units. Um, I would describe it as a as a, a safe haven and a place to begin to take a look at what is really happening when we're housing people. Uh, there's a lot of black and brown families that are being housed in the scattered sites And there's a lot of disabled and seniors in 
they have a connection to community partners that can provide services and programs. It's a little tricky though. It's like if you don't know what you're looking for and you don't have a relationship and a lingo, then you most likely won't get connected to the programs and services. And that's something that is always an area to take a look at of how are folks getting connected to programs and services? How are these programs and services being promoted? How is their language created? How are staff members being uh, aware of who is in need of this connection and how to get them connected and have a like a successful process of them staying in the programs and having a good experience in the programs. One thing that I have learned is that Imagine LA is connected to the South Scatter Sites. It's a recent thing and for you to get services from Imagine LA, then you would have to have been chronically homeless or like have two years consecutive of homelessness for you to be matched with the Imagine LA mentorship. I don't know if that has changed, but once Imagine LA got connected and I seen that that was like a service that was offered, I was like, let's sign up. But unfortunately they said, well, Lorraine, you got in housing I think it was like five years prior to when Imagine LA started to partner. So I didn't qualify, but Mm. still looking for opportunities because the family, the family mentorship piece is one that could help so much with this circumstance of living in an unsafe neighborhood and just having the ability to be brought out of it because you've, you're connected to someone who has other life experiences. So yeah, South Scattered Sites is a unique space where folks can get housed and healed and also hurt if you don't know the lingo. <laughs> Unfortunately, things started to change. When I got shot, it was just like, kind of turned all that upside down. It was still ours. Kinda, cause a lot of things happened around that time. My house was broken into twice in a week, not around Christmas time. And when those things started to happen, it, it kind of felt like the tangible part of a home was being taken away from us. But you know, a home is wherever you are and the people that you're with. So we still had that, but as far as the safety of a home, like these people came in our house two times in a week. Like it was nothing. Safety of going places, a lot of that was taken from us. For me personally, I had to do a lot of readjusting on what I wanted from a home. Because now it wasn't even just about the home, it was about the community. It was much bigger than just the home for me because the house is located in the community and I wanted it to be in a community where I had the same safety that I could have in my home where I could walk down the street and not have to worry about nothing. Lorraine, can you tell us a little more about the circumstances of Melvin getting shot? I'm just curious, did he know his assailants? Um, Were they targeting him? How common was this kind of violence in the community? Yeah, this type of violence is very common. I grew up in different parts of L.A. and I had, like gained this sense of this is what happens and 
gotten numb to the fact of every other week or so we were going to funerals. That summer that Melvin had gotten shot, I think he had four of his high school friends be murdered. My daughter, Destiny, who was also in high school, had lost three of her high school friends all in that same summer. And these are in different places, but all in the area of South L.A. And most of them were circumstances of drive-bys or just being hit by a stray bullet and not even knowing where it came from. So, yeah, it's, it's very common for some reason, something happens in the summer where it like skyrockets. So for Melvin, he didn't know the assailants. That day was, it was a very normal day. South Scatter Sites had an event where Maxine Waters had shown up after I had let Maxine Waters know that I live in uh, the South Scatter Sites. And she shared with me how she was a part of helping the property management keep their buildings. So she decided to show up at one of our back to school events. We were there. I introduced Maxine to the children and she took a good look at Melvin and she said, you're going to do great things. I can tell. And um, she asked him to keep in touch with her. And then Melvin said, okay, mom, I'm going to head out. And I was on my way to my social justice meeting with royalty my nine-year-old and my daughter destiny happened to say mom I want to go home she didn't want to go to the meeting so I took her home and seemed like it wasn't even two minutes after I pulled away from the house that destiny called me and she said mom Melvin shot and I'm like what huh so speed back down the street and Um, I'm like hearing sirens and they're passing my car and police are passing my car and I pull up into the driveway and the neighbors, they come out and they're like, we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. We were just outside. We were talking. Melvin walked up to say hi and a car pulled up and started to shoot and everyone started to run toward the back, which is where my apartment was and Melvin was going to try to go into the house until he realized like the shooter was very close to him so he just continued to run and a neighbor pulled him into their house and the neighbor was like Melvin you're shot and um our lives changed drastically from that point uh all I can remember is seeing Melvin and wanting to make sure that There wasn't great damage to where the bullet wasn't traveling or um, there was something that we did not know about how the bullet went in and went out and just wanted him to be still and be safe and frustrated that the ambulance had passed us up and I guess they didn't know where they were going. And I don't remember what happened with what my daughter did or royalty. All I could remember is royalty yelling in the car because as I had the phone on speaker and destiny said Melvin has been shot like royalty went into this yell and that's like all I could remember and then the next day I remember um, my sister saying do you want me to bring royalty home and I'm like yeah huh yep
Um, yeah, I was just at home chilling. Like, this is stuff we do every day. The neighbors are just hanging out in the parking lot, kids outside playing. And we have a fairly big driveway. Um, we're just hanging outside like we do every day. School is out, so of course all the kids are outside. Car just pulls up and they stop in front of the driveway. My back is turned to them, so I, I don't really see too much of what's going on. I just hear the gunshot go past like my, my ear and see the, the people that do see what's going on dunking. And then I ran. I remember getting ready to run and get in the house. I took one look back and one quick look and I saw the the guy lean a certain way towards the door of the house and I just I just kept running straight and I, I went into whoever house door was open. I didn't know I got shot. It was crazy. I just kinda felt like a little sting on my arm, like I got scraped, so I just, I, what I thought in my head was like I was running fast, I wasn't paying attention, I probably just scraped my arm or something, wasn't that much. And then like, I just remember rubbing my arm, I saw a little bit of blood, I looked, and there was a hole in my arm, I'm like, dang, what the heck? I, I couldn't believe it. Like, you, you hear about stuff like that happening, but until it's really you, man, that's another type of thing. And what happened after the shooting? How did the shooting impact you and your family? Whew. So uh, school still went on. And as my daughter got ready to go to school, royalty got ready to go to school, Melvin sat on the stairs and he said, Mom, I can't go in the car. And I'm like, okay, I get it. We'll try again. So I got Destiny and royalty off to school. I came back to the house and I asked Melvin if he was ready yet. He said he wasn't ready. He got home from the hospital. They released him, right? They said there was a clear wound and went in and went out. And Melvin had this mindset that I'm okay. I could live life normally. And that wasn't the case. Um, it took a while for Melvin to even get into the car again. And when he did, he laid on the floor. And he said, Mom, can we get tenant windows? And it hurt me every time that he got in the car and laid on the floor because he didn't know who was the shooter or why they were shooting and if they had any idea about him still being alive. So prior to Melvin getting shot, Melvin wanted to express himself as an individual and not be relying upon mom for transportation to and from school. So he was getting to that stage of I'll do public transportation. And a few times at the Rosa Park transit station, he had had folks encounter him was saying to him, where is he from? And Melvin would always respond the same. I'm, I'm, I don't bang. I'm not from nowhere. And so he started to like piece all these things together and he was like, well, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. We started to take a focus of like the areas where people hang out and where the people like stand and shoot dice on the sidewalk. And yeah, it, it took hypervigilance to 100. It was like my symptoms of the paranoia schizophrenia took off and... I remember sitting with the psychiatrist and 
first time in life that I had been medicated because I could not be okay. It was every day on the phone with the police department asking them, what do they know? Have they found out anything? Them treating me as though I was a reporter and not wanting to give me information. Calling the housing property management and asking them what's going on with the relocation and um, being so afraid of every area that they tried to move us into. It just seemed like Every area that they said this is where available housing is was another highly concentrated gang area. So it's like, no, I can't do it. And I I could not make a decision of where we would move to. And um, the pressure got on where they said, Miss Cantley, if you don't pick a unit now, then you're just going to have to stay where you are. And Melvin was like, there's no way we could stay here. And even Before that, we had our home broken into twice and our vehicle broken into twice. So it was just, uh, I felt a lot of hatred that I had been trying to make peace with and forgive from the times of being fully in the gang activity and the gang life. Like I felt all of that like swelling up in me and I was like, yeah, I can't. I can't do this. I got to move. And um, I'm always reminded that what I would tell myself is it was easier to bury my brother who was murdered due to we don't know if it was the police or the gang or whatever, because it's just so much controversy in how he was murdered. But there was an idea that it was easier to bury him than it is to help my son live and heal and um we're still living through it today what happens a lot when trauma happens things kind of get blurred i remember for me it was so stressful that i ended up having to be put on medication psych meds because it felt like everything was happening and nothing was happening and i had to fight for our right to be relocated. And the options that were being given for relocation would lead to more uh, trauma for me having black male sons, like moving in the heart of East LA where the crime rate on black males is particularly higher than anything else. Another housing project where it's well known for males in that age bracket to be uh, jumped into gangs. Yeah, this one wasn't too far from where I got my train snatched. Yeah. Yeah, we chose this place because it was closer to other family members who I really needed assistance from because it was hard for me to have to maneuver with four children and trying to work and needing more support from friends and family, knowing that you felt so unsafe and walking was not an option. Yeah. Yeah. And then moving here, we found out that a lot more people that you grew up with, went to school with, that lives in the community, that are young, your peers, ended up losing their lives that same summer. Yep. Like three or four of them. And this is what we deal with on a daily. 
Yeah. In the interview, you talked about the pipeline to housing instability. Um, Can you talk about how the violence people are exposed to contributes to future instability in their lives? Yeah. I always think to the statement that is made, like there's so many people with mental illnesses and I'm like, okay, let's start to really dig into the root of this. Every time I see data that they want to put out on people with mental illness that are connected to neighborhoods of high crime and where there's connection to substance use and all these rooted hatred that has been handed down for decades and it impacts one's mental well-being. And when you aren't able to settle with your thoughts and to think things through, then how could you not end up homeless unless there's like someone that you know that has a house waiting for you despite how much income you're able to earn due to the fact that you don't have the stability in your mindset to go and work or you don't have the ease and the the calmness and the peace in oneself to be a, a participant in the community, to be a participant in life. When people are living highly stressed, what else could you expect? of them, but to be able to fall through these gaps. And I, I feel like it was set up by default for it to happen that way. Just knowing like you put this pressure, all this pressure on someone, they're going to fall between the gaps. I feel like the hope was that we would, um, we would disappear, but we're showing up in homelessness. Yeah. One of the ways to not fall through the cracks is to really, do a lot of healing um, around the trauma that folks experience. And I feel like you and your children are black belts in healing. Um, Your family is really amazing at using lots of different tools to do that important healing work. Um, And I know for Melvin, music's been particularly important. Um, He's an incredibly talented young man. I'm a huge fan of his music. Um, Can you talk about what music has meant to him? Yeah, so I think back to how during slavery, there's this connection to music, and that's the way that people express themselves through inspiration, joy, sorrow, grief. And Melvin was brought up in an environment where his mom is a musician, dad's a musician, it was like constant exposure to what it's like to record music, what it's like to dance to music, what it's like to gather around music. And Melvin has allowed for that to be a channel for him, for his healing. I know when he could not go outside anymore, he was just very adamant on, Mom, I need to turn my room into a studio. And that's what he did. He turned his room into a recording studio. He learned how to work the equipment. And he channeled his energy through recording music and fashion design and that's so amazing every time I think about it, like, huh. And yeah, some of the music is very aggressive. And some of the family members are like, why you let him do that? And I'm like, look, I've never been shot. So whatever he needs to do to heal, let him do it. Let him express himself in the music. Thank you for having me. It means a lot if all of y'all can 
Go on any listening platform that you use, Spotify, Pandora, SoundCloud, whatever you use. Go search up Higher Education by Too Hungry and listen to the album. It's, it's not your average rap music. It's something a little different. You, you got to be focused for it. You got to be ready. You got to say It's one of the songs. I want to have one or two songs on that album on the spiritual side. And I want to do a song with my mom, of course. So <laughs> we did that. I think it's pretty nice. It's a little different from what I usually would do, but I appreciate being able to work with my family, of course, and being able to take hits at different genres of music. Yeah. So we are going to bring to you all, we'd like to introduce the song. Got that, I'll say. It's Too Hungry. Too Hungry, L.A. Ray, and Royalty. Royalty. Royalty got those vocals, y'all. Y'all listen in. Stay tuned. I've been made new. There's nothing you could do about it. I'm living proof of how the truth will bring the change about you. Rearrange your thinking when love starts to sink in. Takes away the heartache and the pain. Getting deeper. Replace it with forgiveness. I hope you get this. Realign your purpose. See a whole new vision. When you rearrange your thinking and love starts to sink in. It takes away the heartache and the pain. Getting deeper. Replace it with forgiveness. Man, I hope I get this. Realign my purpose. See a whole new vision. Maybe start my own business. Living is so relentless when you're knowing what your worth is. You see the tables turning. I don't trip up on them haters. Tell them I see you later. Don't worry about who tripping. Just stay focused on ambition and walk into the favor as I step into the season. Knowing everything happens for a reason. Saying, Almighty, Almighty. Oh my Lord, 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 oh
We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley, Molly Reisman, Bill Lance, New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.